something that I think is really interesting to think about and be careful about analytically and as activists is what that is doing. Because certainly representation in a market space is often about serving or capturing a wider market to make money, which is fine if you're a company. But I wonder what that rhetoric in a space that isn't about building things for profit is doing. That is Christina Dunbar-Hester. On this episode of New Books and Technology, I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. So the book is Hacking Diversity, The Politics of Inclusion in Open Technology Cultures. And the author is Christina Dunbar-Hester. So what we always like to do right off the bat, uh, New Books and Technology, is ask, who is the author? So who is Christina Dunbar-Hester? Hello. Um, Well, Christina Dunbar-Hester is my name. I am faculty at the University of Southern California in the Annenberg School for Communication. And my area of interest and research is basically politics of technology, especially in activist settings. Um, So this is the second book I've written broadly in the vein of people working with technology um, broadly to address political concerns. Um, So in particular, in this book, looking at communities of folks who engage with computing and networked computing uh, because they have beliefs about trying to, you know, build things to satisfy their own individual and community needs um, and sort of how the belief that people should have access to technology and, you know, open, open it up, look under the hood, modify its guts to suit their needs, how that sort of plays out in practice is something I've been looking at uh, for a while in my research. So how did you get here? Yeah, um, my home field, what I have my doctorate in is called science and technology studies. And so that's social and cultural studies of science and technology in society. And how I got to this current book Uh, there is a bit of a backstory. Uh, I had done an earlier book project that is called Low Power to the People, which came out with MIT Press in 2014. And that was a study of people who were advocating for building community radio stations uh, in the contemporary moment. So it was technologically sophisticated activists who knew about the internet and the supposed democratic possibilities it offered, but were still making a claim to the analog radio spectrum. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, I know we talked about this many years ago, one of the things that was part of their politics was basically to push a little on uh, the idea of who could be an expert. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was, for them, a a sort of emancipatory move to try to open up technology and technological practice as part of a broader uh, politics of democratic participation. And so the thinking was that if people could put their hands on media technology and understand how it worked and make 
uh, some of it themselves, that that would spark them to think differently about how they participated in the media system, which they also felt shouldn't be left to elite actors uh, with a lot of capital and power, um, and even more broadly to a political system. And so thinking of yourself as being able to participate in technology, which had this um, sort of scene of being uh, for experts only was something they wanted to sort of um, approach differently. And so one of the things that they found uh, in spite of their very well-intentioned beliefs was that in trying to impart this really democratic practice to something like the electronics that uh, comprise radio tinkering, they ran into these historical patterns of who is most likely to already have expertise in this domain or to be enthusiastic about it or to think, uh, this is really for me. And those are raced, classed, and gendered in certain ways that sort of ran afoul of their intentions. All of this is to say, um, one of the major themes of that book was people trying to reconcile their sincere, radical, egalitarian feminist beliefs about technical practice being accessible to all with the fact that the technical province had been set up uh, to be not universally accessible and um, sort of working through those. And so when I finished that project, um, in fact, through conversations with both scholars who are in my community, but also with the interlocutors in my book, folks who are active in these sort of hands-on tech circles were also active in hacking circles. And I became aware that somewhat parallel conversations were happening in hacking and open source. This was at this point about 15 years ago uh, in the mid 2000s, there was a report that came out in the EU that was, it was a policy study actually about the economic impact and promise of open source. And it found that the rates of participation by women in open source were very, very low. And so something I, saw was people who were active with that technology finding out about this report and sort of latching on to that in a way that galvanized conversations in their communities. And open source has a sort of ambivalent relationship to egalitarianism. On the one hand, openness uh, sounds like a sort of liberal ideal and all may enter. On the other hand, it was often a sort of openness with the um, caveat that you would only be taken seriously in this meritocratic environment if you were expert like others were expert. Um, But people started, again, pushing back on this notion uh, that this was a truly universally open space and initiating conversations about, you know, whether this uh, space also had a lot of patterns of exclusion, some of them imported from a broader history of computing and engineering, some of them imported more specifically from the sort of cultural strands of of hacking norms Mm -hmm. and free software. And so the moment of the book um, is 
the sort of opening up of these conversations. The other thing to add, sorry if this is rambling, is, you know, I started interviewing people for this in maybe 2011, 2012. Mm -hmm. And I had some conversations with people that suddenly, as I was finishing the book, started to really resemble broader conversations uh, in the sort of second wave of Me Too moments Mm -hmm. uh, after Donald Trump was elected, where I was interviewing people and they were saying, well, we have this, you know, place where people gather, you know, a software conference or something, and there's a reputation that people have been harmed here and we're not going to take it anymore and we're going to go public with it. And so that wound up being a kind of another thing that I realized Later, I was talking to people about this phenomenon, this strand which of, of our culture, which was open technology and hacking, mm-hmm. but really, I think, was a part of a wider phenomenon that all started to sort of come together mm-hmm. uh, later. Why is participation so important? I think that's a wonderful question and not an easy thing to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of can wind up in a sort of ambivalent space about this. I think on the one hand, it is too easy and often sort of folly to just say, we're going to make a site like technology, which is inarguably a really important, you know, site of contestations over power in our society to sort of say, we'll just open this up, um, in a sort of flat, non-hierarchical way. There are a lot of problems with that. We know, again, some animals have been more equal than others historically. Uh, we also know that the sort of impulse that often uh, drives some of these self-organized movements to be um, sort of without structure can actually lead to the reassertion of already extant patterns of power So we don't want to go into this with a sort of naive universalism uh, or naive non-hierarchical, non-hierarchy. I won't try to make that into an adjective. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that, again, I think I want to be very, very clear that it's important to think about, you know, equity and, um, you know, what steps would be made to remediate not just access, but participation and, you know, a sort of politics where people can come together and, you know, sort through, you know, different kinds of folks having different aims, having different, you know, backgrounds, having different needs. Um, But I also think to me that the sleight of hand that often happens where participation in politics and participation in technology kind of shade into one another or vice versa, um, something we want to be careful about because I think at its worst technological participation can, can stand in for political empowerment in ways that are actually quite problematic. Um, one, it can seem sort of coercive. Uh, again, while I think there are liberatory reasons to participate in technological production, I'm not convinced that that's something that everybody needs to do, especially if a society has, I mean, as we're seeing right now, unfortunately, with the pandemic, you know, gross inequities in it, telling people, you know what you need, you just need to learn to code. And uh, that is a sort of panacea for social ills. Um, 
I'm not convinced that a truly egalitarian society would actually have everybody be equal participants in technology. Mm -hmm. I would like that route to exist as a possibility. And I think it's really, really important. But I I think that there are, at this point, countless examples um, that show that those things are not equivalent to one another. Mm -hmm. And so teasing that apart rhetorically and helping activists who I want to underscore, I think the intentions here are really, really good most of the time. Um, Why sort of building up tech participation without looking at what the edifice of tech participation has tended to support um, might land you further away from where you intend to be in terms of uh, really building equity. Mm -hmm. And so we've been having this, we started having this conversation and there's some terms that I think are really important. Um, You use two terms in particular, emancipatory or emancipation and liberatory or liberation. So what do those mean within the context of this like, broader conversation about open technology and participation? Right. So obviously these do etymologically and, you know, they will spark us to think about, you know, the sort of highest um, and loftiest sort of goals and, and outcomes for people and I would say even, you know, other kinds of entities and and features, you know, really sort of emphasizing not just survival, but flourishing, right? Um, Creative expression, having your needs met, um, having the ability to make your world um, in ways that are, you know, about, you know, freedom, but not I guess something I want to sort of underscore is sometimes in these communities, there can be a sort of emphasis on almost a libertarian ideal, a sort of individual freedom. Uh, Something I think that the hacking, uh, especially feminist hackers uh, and the sort of people questioning the sort of hacking diversity impulse um, in this book are really drawing out attention between sort of individual freedoms and collective emancipation um, and sort of saying, if this site is, one where it's really freeing for certain kinds of folks to participate, but others are excluded. Well, first of all, do we think this is a problem? At this point, I think the answer is fairly unequivocally yes. Second, how do you solve that? Third, how do you solve that in the space of tech? Uh, Fourth, to what extent are the solutions in the space of tech mirrored by or distinct from some of these questions in the larger society. Again, I want to be careful about equating uh, sort of technologically bounded notions of emancipation from sort of wider ones about, you know, human and uh, even, you know, post-human kinds of uh, flourishing and existence. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was about conversations about power and power in these uh, frames, particularly with the, uh, dealing with this this book anyway, um, the open technology, but also with, uh, you know, low power to the people, the radio. Um, So what does power have to do with it, I guess, is the question. (laughs) Oh, many things. (laughs) Um, One of the things that's been interesting to me in my career as a, you know, educator is I, Every semester, I guess, I'd put up a map of the U.S. and wind up talking to the students about where 
the seat of power is, you know, in, in the boundary of the United States. And more and more and more, of course, people are not looking at Washington, D.C. and they're looking at Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. Um, also thinking through, you know, negative and positive liberty or regulation uh, as being, you know, regulation that can enhance freedoms, uh, you know, fr- freedom from fear, freedom to, you know, go out and in our current moment, take risks and start a business and not have to worry about health insurance for your employee because there's a net for you and everybody else. Um, you know, Silicon Valley's getting away, I think, inarguably with a number of things, including calling, say, Uber and Lyft and Airbnb and Facebook tech companies, as opposed to transportation companies, hospitality companies, uh, and media companies, for instance. Uh, so some of this has to do with how things are labeled and, you know, semantically understood and circulated, um, and thinking about regulation. Uh, I think some of what we're seeing is almost as a sort of, I mean, I hope it's starting to change, but it almost might makes right and move fast and break things. So power matters there. Uh, if you're able to skirt a regulatory framework by claiming that the product that you're building sort of exists outside of it, uh, there's a lot of power there. That can also return us to thinking about, you know, whose needs, desires are centered at some of the kinds of these enterprises. Um, And, you know, I think something that we're hearing more and more of, and certainly some of the actors in my book bring up, is, you know, thinking about some of this stuff from the perspective of uh, not just who can sort of move first or move fast or break things, but who might be harmed uh, by building certain things. Um, Some of the conversations that sort of peek through in the corners here um, are things like, you know, AI, right? That's a big topic of the day. Uh, But some of the critiques that I find very compelling are if AI is predicated upon having a really, really massive and often automated data set achieved through machine learning, uh, a lot of that data set is being generated through things like mass surveillance, often through participation in these companies that have a lot of our data, and all of that's being built uh, within and atop a society that is constitutively racist and white supremacist, for example, um, it is, you know, really, really challenging, but really important to think about, you know, pulling some of this stuff apart. If, you know, if we could make um, some of these technologies less harmful, uh, you know, are are they the sort of lever or do we want to be thinking about, um, you know, regulating them before they even get built. I don't know if that made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, you know, certain ways in which technology in particular is a very, very convenient cover for, um, 
not necessarily even new agendas, uh, but continuing to perpetuate old ones. And power relations are absolutely built into those uh, in ways that, you know, this sort of brings us back to participation. Even just having new sorts of folks participate, quote, in um, technological production within a society that has certain power relations essentially built into it. Um, you know, you have to be, I think, thinking in a very sophisticated manner about challenging some of the cultural scripts around technology, uh, often that it's sort of autonomous or is going to be built anyway, and we don't have a lot of agency to contest that. Um, also, what it would mean to not just sort of add new folks and stir and see if that produces different technology, but to really think about the sort of fundamentals of power relations, um, you know, at every step of conceiving of building, regulating, perhaps discarding certain kinds of artifacts. And so one of the things that you, you mentioned in the book is how the floss space is fundamentally different from the, as we were just talking about, the tech, what we think of as tech firms, the Silicon Valley space, even though they're both tech or tech related, that they're fundamentally different. They have different ethos um, or, or motivations. Now, how does that affect the attempts at diversifying or a diversity and inclusion initiatives? Um, it's a great question. I'm not sure how fundamentally distinct they are. I think they're sort of adjacent. Um, FLOSS uh, stands for free or libre and open source software. And um, other folks have written about this more than I have, but there's a sort of genealogy there. Free software, as it was labeled and intended in its sort of earliest strains, was you know, again, perhaps naively, but I think was intended as a more uh, sort of radical or liberatory um, ethos. Open source in particular is, um, you know, it's about contesting some of the big behemoths and it is about rewriting um, code with attention to, you know, ownership and authorship. But there is a certain way in which a lot of these things are more sort of on a continuum than mm -hmm. completely distinct. And yet I think the thing that you're picking up on is one of the questions I ask in the book, everything that I'm looking at in the book is a voluntaristic effort. Mm -hmm. Most of these people maybe work in tech uh, and are certainly, you know, have at least one foot in a more entrepreneurial corporate space a lot of the time, but that's not necessarily what brings people together in their volunteered time. Because what I'm writing about is meetups and, you know, online and, and in person and hackerspace events and, and things that are um, organized through, you know, voluntaristic collaboration. They're not sponsored by workplaces. And so that's something that I think we could sort of think about teasing apart. Uh, and I think sometimes it's convenient for the activists in the diversity and hacking or diversity and flaw space to use some of the rhetoric that is very comfortable and familiar from workplaces 
Now you talked about teasing out like some definitions, some ideas that perhaps um, are, are used. But one of the things I thought interesting is that you specifically declined to define diversity in the book. And in fact, you explicitly stated that you were not going to do that. And I was wondering, like, if you could talk about that choice not to define diversity, because if you think about other books that are out and even the conversation and organizations that you and I both know, um, big communications organizations, anthropological organizations, right? Are, are defining diversity and inclusion and what that means for them. But you specifically declined to do that. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, one, there's the, you know, somewhat perhaps tired, but distinction in particularly anthropological writing between, you know, emic and edic and the actor's category and your own category. Um, I was really trying to follow that concept in the discourse that the voices and actors in the book were having. And so partly for that reason, I wanted my ear to sort of train into the conversations that were happening without necessarily trying to overlay a um, prescription of my own. And that's actually another goal or anti-goal or something of the book. The book isn't trying to be prescriptive about how to attain or achieve diversity. And part of the reason why is that I, I wonder how much this concept, but particularly this term, uh, has been you know, defanged in a way. Um, the criticisms by people like Angela Davis or Sarah Ahmed about, uh, you know, multiculturalism or diversity wind up doing in certain ways, almost the opposite kind of work uh, that some folks who are sincerely invested in bringing those issues to the fore want to do, Um, you know, that they can sort of get mobilized in a way that reinforces power in institutions. Um, and, And so, I really just wanted to kind of explore and plumb all the places this discourse was going without, you know, putting too much of my own sort of stamp on it. Obviously I'm very, very um, sympathetic and, you know, believe that we need to be attentive to, you know, matters of difference, matters of power. Um, But I also, wanted to be able to, again, sort of follow the voices of, of the people working on this in their communities without getting too much of my own analytic baggage uh, sort of mixed up with theirs. And another thing that sort of comes out specifically in these sort of volunteeristic spaces, you know, it might be realistic for a hacking group that meets once a month to address, uh, for example, being more inclusive about gender Um, and something else that happens a lot in the book is conversations about gender, getting into, you know, questioning gender binaries and essentialism. And, you know, pretty early on there were conversations that were like, are we trying to be inclusive to women or do we want to leave open space to not essentialize or stereotype women and also admit uh, non-binary or trans folks into these spaces. 
And, you know, the answer was pretty resoundingly yes. But some of that might be a realistic goal in a volunteeristic space that doesn't address all the kinds of social and economic inequality that I think these groups maybe want to address, but just sort of by definition can't. There's a problem of scale. Well, one of the ways that you describe um, the motivation of open technology groups and hacking groups is to remake that, that their idea or their motivation is to remake the world. So how does their mission or motivation to remake the world differentiate their initiatives related to, you know, inclusion or diversity, or just make them kind of the same thing that we've seen from so many other either related um, fields as far as diversity and inclusion or um, different from, from those initiatives or programs or whatever we want to call them? What I think is important here is the fact that because tech is getting held up as a singular domain, both in terms of its power, you know, if we're looking to Silicon Valley and not to, to DC to, you know, build our future or solve our problems, um, that in, a, in and of itself is, is worthy of attention and analysis. The other question, again, is these are volunteeristic groups. And so their belief Right? They're even coming to technology because it seems like a place to move the world, to fix problems, to build a world that you know, doesn't exist but might yet or something. Mm-hmm. And so I think the way that those two topics intersect is something that this book is, I hope, contributing to. Um, thinking about what happens uh, when people who, again, I think their goals a lot of the time are deeper in a sense than some of what diversity can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, I think, are really more about economic and social solidarity and equality that diversity doesn't quite capture. Also, anti-militarism is not a huge part of that conversation, but it is there. And I think it's important to sort of pull it out and name it and think about amplifying it. Um, so insofar as tech is this singular domain, diversity is supposed to solve social problems. Tech is supposed to solve social problems. You know, therefore one might conclude diversity in tech is the end all be all to get us somewhere where we'd rather be where we're not now. You know, I think a lot of that rhetoric is out there. And I think these are people with sincere beliefs about trying to make the world a better place, trying to, um, build for, you know, equity and inclusion that they don't see. Um, But I think there are some very, you know, tricky and and sticky problems with uh, approaching it, just saying, oh, diversity in tech will be this panacea uh, without kind of unpacking what those ideas are doing and especially what they're doing as they're kind of intersecting or building off each other. Mm-hmm. I hope that made sense. <laughs> yes. So let's keep in that same vein. Like, what do you hope uh, readers take away from this book? 
Ah, wonderful question. And I don't even know who all the readers will be. I've actually gotten uh, some, you know, feedback that folks in tech and hacking circles are are reading it. And that is really exciting, although always a little bit scary. (laughs) You know, will they recognize what's going on here? Will they agree with me? Um, And, you know, also academic readers, more general readers. I, I hope that one of the things that the book can do is bring some clarity and some historical sensibility, which I think is sometimes lacking and understandably so if you're not a scholar uh, who's, you know, learning and and teaching about this stuff for a living uh, to some of these conversations. So that's something I, I hope the book can contribute to and, um, you know, intervene into one of the things that I, perhaps ironically, perhaps very obviously, perhaps um, controversially, I don't know, but really do come down saying at the end is it's great to want to make technology more inclusive or more equitable, but we are really squandering an opportunity to have a better, richer, and um, I think more meaningful conversation about social equity and equality if we're making technology be the place where that conversation starts and ends. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I really hope would be, I mean, I, maybe it's sort of orthogonal to some of these conversations um, that, that policy spaces and ed spaces and others are having. So I don't know how that will be received, hopefully not totally falling on ears that won't hear it. Uh, but that's something I really do think we need to mm-hmm. take seriously. So what's next for you? Um, let me get back to you when I figure it out. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, since moving to Southern California, I've gotten my head really turned by like oil and the port. And um, so still technology, but maybe less tech activism in the, you know, DIY space or something, Mm -hmm. things that are actually bigger than DIY by a lot. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to me, talk about your book. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. 